0: We just come before you, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, we ask that you show us and guide us what you would have us to see, and we just ask you to, your spirit to lead, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Ezekiel chapter 22, we're going to read from uh, verse 1, just to get some context, we're going to be studying from verse 9. Moreover the word of the Lord came into me, saying, Now you son of man, will you judge, will you judge the bloody city? Yea, you shall show her all her abominations. Then say you, Thus says the Lord God, The city sheds blood in the midst of it, and her time may come, and make idols against herself to defile herself. You are become guilty of your blood that you have shed, and you have defiled yourself in your idols which you have made, and you have caused your days to draw near, and are come even unto your years. Therefore have I made you a reproach unto the heathen, and a mocking unto all countries. Those that be near and those that be far from you shall mock you, Which are infamous and much vexed. Behold the princes of Israel, every one of them were in you to their power to shed blood. In you they have shed, set light by father and mother. In you have they dealt oppression with the strangers. In you they have vexed the fatherless and widow. You have despised my holy things and have profaned my Sabbaths are men that carry tales to shed blood and in you they eat upon the mountains in the midst of you they commit lewdness in you they have discovered their father's nakedness and they have humbled her that was set apart from pollution before pollution and one abomination with his neighbor's life another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law another hath humbled his sister his father's daughter in you have they taken So we're going to look at this. Uh, the description that Ezekiel is supposed to give on, on Jerusalem is pretty harsh. And how evil they've been. They've been committing murders. They're trying to get away with whatever they want. Basically, he's saying the strong have taken by force. If you argued with them, they killed you. And so we're going to continue in verse 9. In you are men that carry tails to shed blood. In you they eat upon the mountains. In the midst of you they commit lewdness. So the first part is, in you, they carry tales to shed blood. In other words, they are giving slanderous information and, and perjury. Uh, you know, they're, they're bringing bad tales against people, bringing them to court and, and saying that they're bad and, and shedding false information about people. And again, you kind of look at this whole section, and they could be easily ta- talking about America or just about any other country in the world right now. Uh, which is what's happened and when this happens it brings judgment and it the ultimate of the judgment was before the deluge in noah's day when everyone did what was right in their own eyes and they did all of these things to the point where everybody in the whole world was doing it and that's what we're seeing in our day pretty much i don't know that there's any country where you're not seeing this kind of stuff prevail Including many of the third world countries. We're seeing this stuff just running rampant. And there's no country that God can say, okay, now here's the one that I'm going to move my righteous to because it's a righteousness to because this is a righteous country. Which then tells us that we're in the end times when Revelation is going to come true, that all men are doing what is right in their own eyes, and God's going to take the church and, and the tribulation period will start. So it's kind of fun reading this stuff because you go, okay, this is us, this is where we are at right now. People just, if you don't like the person, you say bad things about them and nobody questions it and they they get taken to court or their reputation is destroyed. And that's what he's saying. In you have been those that carry tales that shed blood. And this is, in the Jewish law you had to have the witness of at least two eyewitnesses to be convicted of a capital offense. And you'll see various places in the scriptures where they hire and it'll say, men of Bial, Bial which is devils basically uh, Wicked people who are serving Satan and they testified against him, and we see that over and over at Jesus's uh, trial uh, Before Caiaphas they hired witnesses to tell false tales about him and they and even though they contradicted each other which was against the law they had to match Their their testimony had to match they still wanted to convict Jesus of capital punishment, but because they were under Rome, they had to take him to Caesar, uh, uh, to uh, Pilate, and then they manipulated Pilate into making the decision to kill Jesus. So here we're seeing, he's saying, you guys do this all the time. Jerusalem, you're doing this all the time, and that's why you're going into captivity, because you're doing this stuff all the time. He says, and further in here he goes, and in you they eat upon the mountains. And you kind of figure out, you might be thinking, Well, what's so wrong with eating on top of the mountains well it wasn't just the eating on the mountains we've talked about this many times what was going on on the mountains worshiping of idols okay so this isn't just saying I took my picnic lunch up to the top of the mountain and had had a meal this is I went up to the temple and I partook of the temple sacrifices and and offerings Okay, so when you read that, when you see, usually when it talks about anything happening and it's negative on the high mountains and the high places in the Old Testament, uh, when you hear those, think temples <laughs> for the idols. All right? And all through uh, Kings and Chronicles, they said, and the king, you know, when it was a good king, the king clear, cleaned out Jerusalem of idols, but he did not get rid of the high, high places or the mountains one or one or not or both of them are usually what they didn't do that means he didn't clear out all of the temples he just cleared out the ones in jerusalem occasionally they'd go out and they'd clear out the high places but not the mountains or they'd clear out the mountains but not the high places so when you read those they're basically saying uh idols a temple for the idols all right just to help you get some knowledge of what that phrase means, <laughs> uh, you eat upon the high, high, uh, high places, you worship upon the high places, or the mountains. Uh, so when you read those, that's what he's talking about. It wasn't just saying, yeah, they went up there and had a, you know, had their picnic lunch on the mountains. That wasn't, that wasn't against the rules. Okay, verse 9 continues, in the midst of you, they commit lewdness. And lewdness is one of those really strong words, evil plans, wicked, purchase, purpose, mischievousness. Uh, lewd acts. You know, A lot of times it refers to sexual acts outside of the normal, which even in our country, in our country and many other countries, they're trying to eliminate those ideas of what a lewd act is and trying to make it that anything is okay. It's not, there's nothing wrong with any activity. This was what was going on in Israel at that time was That even though God said don't have all these different sexual activities outside of marriage, they were anything was going, and God says I'm judging you. And even when they came in, the whole reason they were killing off the entire population of the promised land was because of all their sexual immorality that they were committing. It's if you look in history, they had no no word for lewd type of sexual activities it was just sex and it didn't matter whether it was with your daughter or some other child or with near kin, far kin, animal, anything else, it was just okay in one word for it and it was all permissible and that's been true all through history when, when nations have fallen, if you really look deep into their history, sexual perversion has been accepted as normal. And that's why one of the problems we're having in our country and our world right now is that sexual perversions are being accepted as normal in all across the first world country and almost all the second world com- countries. And the third world countries are being pressured <laughs> to accept it right now. So it's not much further until the whole world is at the t- place of, before Noah and doing what was right in their own eyes. And God's always condemning, 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 condemning that activity because he says that the the intimacy between a husband and a wife is the picture of the intimacy between Jesus and the church, which is why Satan is pushing so hard to destroy the whole picture of marriage. Because if he can destroy marriage, then when you talk about Jesus with his bride, it, it loses its impact with people. It's. Many people have lost the impact when God is called our Father because of how much uh, abuse, both physical and sexual abuse, goes on between fathers and their children. Satan has done a great job destroying the picture of God's relationship with his people. I've met some people who go, God wants you to be your father. And go, I don't want a father. I know, I know what fathers do. And they can't get through their mind that God is a good father because they've never seen it, and in some cases have no friends that have had a good father either. Uh, you know, when my daughter was in preschool, uh, they did some kind of survey and found out that out of the 30 kids in her preschool class, she was the only one that had a mother and father at home. Okay, many of them didn't even know who their fathers were. You know. Slept with their mom and had abandoned them and left, you know, so it was one of those things where out of thirty kids, and this was, you know, in the eighties. Okay, how much worse is it today? You know. We start talking as Christians about God wanting to be a father, wanting to be a husband. Most people have no clue what that means. They've got such negative opinions of family life. We have many people who don't even want to get married because of how how bad they think it is from their personal and from what they see on television that everybody has no no good family life and every family you see on TV is a, distor- is a distortion of the family and they, every family they know has been distorted and, and ruined and Satan is working hard to destroy the families which is why churches have to work hard at building families. And taking older people who have some idea what a family is and having them mentor young people that are getting to know God and, and in the communities and saying, this is what a family is supposed to look like. This is God's picture of a family. You know, one of my prayers for my kids has always been God put them with the right person who's going to know what it means to be a husband or a wife and knows what it means to be a parent because they've been raised with all of that. And it puts you in an unequally yoked place when you're trying to be a parent and they're trying to be a friend that the world's telling them that the parent's supposed to be. And you know, it's not bad that you try to be a friend with your kids, but you gotta remember that you're a parent first and a friend second. And sometimes that means your kids are gonna get mad at you. And that's just the way it is. And we see this over and over. Satan is attacking family, which makes it difficult the church to be able to say because God uses family as his picture of who he is with his, with his people. And so we need to really lift up family, staying away from lewd acts, staying away from disobedient acts that, that lead away from what a family is. Uh, I, you know It's said that you know, the church has just as bad a, a divorce rate as the world. I had one person, one pastor I heard said, it's kind of su- it was funny, sad even, but it was funny. He goes, yeah, but Christians are also the only ones getting married in the world. Which is probably true because there's not a lot of, non- there's not a lot of non-Christians that even get married. So the divorce rate probably is mostly Christians, which makes it even worse <laughs> that it's that high. Uh, because we should be getting right, uh, married under the right principles and under the right right reasons and getting divorced for only the reason that God says is biblical and that's for adultery but yet we don't follow God's word mostly because when push comes to shove most Christians don't believe God's word is true and correct you know they will see it all the time and we've we've done it ourselves (laughs) in various areas of our lives you know how many people have never witnessed in their entire life why because I'm afraid to Jesus told you to. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I don't care. I'm just not going to look like a fool out in the world. You know, God, uh, I know that you say not to do such and such, but you know, I just feel like I need to do it because whatever reason. And when it really comes down to it, we go, God, I'm just not sure your word is true. I'm going to do what I want to do and what, I, what my feelings say. Now, usually when it comes to something like murder or something, we're pretty good about it. When it comes down to lying, well, we like to think that we as adults have, or have done what we tried to teach our kids, tell the truth, it's not a, you're not gonna be in much trouble if you tell the truth. Yet how many times as adults do we hedge the, hedge the truth to try, to try to get out of being in trouble? No officer, I have no idea that I w- what, how fast I was going when I looked down at my speedometer and I was going 30 miles over the speed limit. I don't have a clue how fast I was going. Lie. <laughs> Yeah. Which according to the scriptures is still a lie also, especially when they ask you directly. Because the Bible tells in Deuteronomy that you tell the whole truth. And we've talked about this. Our lawyers in court, we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But your lawyer will tell you to answer just what you are asked and nothing more. So in essence, you're swearing to tell the whole truth. He's telling you, say just a minute, whatever truth gets, gets you to answer their question. You know, so he's telling you to lie, you're swearing to tell the truth by God's standard and he tells you to, to tell the truth by the world's standard. Verse 10, In you they have discovered their father's nakedness, in you they have humbled her that was, was set apart for pollution. Now these are direct re- references to uh, the book of Leviticus. Uh, they have discovered your, their father's nakedness, in other words they're saying that you have either seen and or slept with your mother. Okay, is what that is referring to. Uh, when Noah got drunk and his and uh, Ham came in and and went out, he discovered his father's nakedness. He had seen him either having sex with his mom or had done something, which is kind of more likely because it said when he came to himself, he knew what Ham had done, and it would not have just been Ham seeing him as the issue. So. There, there had to be something more. But his other sons walked in backwards with the blanket and covered their dad. Okay, so when you see this discovered nakedness in the Old Testament, it's referring much more to just <laughs> seeing nakedness. There's, they saw an act. They, they walked in on them. They actually took their mother to bed. Uh, there's some form of deeper instruction, on the, uh, a thought on this one. And it says, they have humbled her that was set aside for pollution. This refers back to Leviticus 12 and Leviticus 15, that you were not to have sex with a woman during her period. (laughs) And he says, you've you've totally ignored my law on that. Okay, Uh, we're just trying to help you get, you know, these things are much more than when you first read them. They look kind of ciphered, and they kind of are. The King James Version of the Bible tries to make things delicate things very uh, poetic and so if you don't know the poetry that they're talking about you really don't know what they're talking about if you read the geneva or some of the older versions some of them come straight out and say straight up what what's being said here during their period yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you're reading either an niv or a new king james <laughs> yeah Yeah, so, and yeah, that is one good thing that in some of the newer versions, as they're they've been more straightforward, trying to make people really know what was being said. Just like in the very beginning, it says, "and and Adam knew his wife." Well, you know, that's much more than yeah, you're you're Eve. I know who you are. Let's let's have a conversation. Yeah. Uh, The word was much more than that. You (laughs) know, he went to bed with her, (laughs) and they produced a kid. yeah, really knew her, you know. so. But uh, and and I think some of the newer versions even said he had carnal knowledge of of her, you know, which is which is a much stronger, much more realistic. It, uh, the King James especially was trying. It was written during that Elizabethan era era where even the idea of sex was somehow dirty, and there's been many Christian groups that have actually taught that, you know. And they would teach a wife the only reason you have sex is for procreation and a husband the same thing You know, and if it's outside of that it's wrong, and that's never what God has said anywhere in scripture And yet there's a lot of people who struggle with that and in churches We teach the young people don't have sex don't have sex don't have sex And we forget the last part until you're married So then when they get married they struggle with the church has always told me not to have sex and now all of a sudden I'm supposed to do it You know there's we've got to be careful how we look at the scriptures and not just lift bits and pieces out of it and twist them we've got to complete the whole merit uh, whole the whole message so that people can know what is true because i remember growing up the whole idea of sex was something that you weren't supposed to do and you know, i'm going but hold it everybody has sex god told them to have sex you know so what's what's wrong with this picture of what you're being told by all my sunday school teachers because they never completed the whole teaching which is why it's important for us to get the whole counsel of God on a topic. Instead of just picking up bits and pieces of it, and there are parts of you know, when you're teaching something, you teach bits and pieces, but hopefully over time, you learn the whole counsel, which is one of the reasons it's important to stay with one pastor long enough to actually get the whole teaching on something, the whole biblical teaching on something. People who jump around every three to five years to a different church are never gonna get the whole counsel of God. The sad thing is, in some churches, you're not gonna get the whole counsel of God anyway, because no pastor, so few pastors are trying to work their way through the whole Bible. And there's a lot of pastors who they just teach their favorite parts of the Bible. And within three to five years, you know what that pastor's favorite parts of the Bible are because they go back to the same things over again. And they haven't even taught. You know, I can probably count how many teachers I've sat under that have taught Micah, Amos, Obadiah, well, usually they'll teach Jonah because Jonah's got that kind of story. Zephaniah, Zechariah, sometimes they'll go into Malachi. You know, very few pastors have ever taught those books that I've listened to. And this is something that you're missing out. And then they'll call them the minor prophets. And they're only minor because they're short books. They're not minor because they have no message in it. They are Those little three, four, five, six-chapter books are powerful messages. And I really encourage people, read them. You never know what you're gonna find in there. It seems to me it's like it's, they only talk about Press is their agenda. But like they have an agenda. Yeah, that's a, that is true. It's pretty much what most pastors will do. It's it's not even necessarily their agenda that they're trying to go, but they just they have certain things they like. I like the love of God, I like the heaven, I like I like the deliverance of God. I'm not so sure about this judgment stuff, so we're gonna kinda of skip skip over pastors it. Some of them think it's too scary to go into. Some of them think, have never studied it themselves and don't understand it. The whole reason we're in Ezekiel because it's the last book of the prophecy series on it. Verse 11. And one has committed abomination with his neighbor's wife and another with has lewdly defiled his sister-in-law and another has humbled his sister, his father's daughter. So here we have, he's continuing this whole point of view and you know, it's kind of amazing when you start thinking about how much sex Sins are are shown in the Bible, and he says he committed an abomination or adultery with his neighbor's wife, an abomination, something that is totally awful and dis, and disgusting, and you know this is where sex ends up having its problems is when it's outside of marriage, God says it's an abomination for you, and a lot of times people will teach just that side of it, you know that out, you know they'll teach it it's terrible outside of marriage it is, and he goes. And another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law, or had incest with his daughter-in-law, which God says very clearly, no. And then he says, and and some of you with your, and basically here it's talking about usually half-sister because it says your father's uh, daughter, not necessarily your complete sister, even though sometimes it is a complete sister, but most of the incidents in the Bible were half, one, the same father and a different mother. But, you know, God is saying, these are the things that you're doing. And again, all through Leviticus, there's a whole chapter on who you can and cannot have relationship with. And basically anybody within that first generation is off limits. Uh, anybody married into your family from your, from your sons and daughters is off limits. Anybody the one generation up, your aunts, are, aunts and their first, and their children are off limits. Our world has made it a little deeper I know it's two or three generations off I think if I recall correctly but God just limited it from one generation once the laws went into place which gets us into all kinds of things because when we start teaching that then people go well where did Cain get his wife he married a sister or he didn't marry anybody (laughs) well you can't marry your sister well that didn't happen until Leviticus that's you know we're talking 2400 years later before (laughs) before it becomes Against the rule, law, God's law, to marry your sister, Abraham married his half sister. Okay, and many people before the law came into had married close rela- relations. By Abraham's time, it was probably getting a little trickier to marry close relations. Before the flood, it didn't really matter perfection, especially in Adam and Eve's generation. Perfect bodies, barely, barely tainted by sin, produced, virtually perfect, ba- you know, physically perfect children. Now over time, there's been sin destroying the bodies and sin destroying the DNA, and we've had bigger and bigger problems to, this, to where we're at now, where if you intermarry too closely, you've got all kinds of diseases, and both physical and mental, that can happen because of close, closely related families. The Samaritans are virtually wiped out because of their intermarrying only within their own, their own people group and they've been pretty much wiped out. And the ones that are are, are in existence are very sickly. The problem that they're now finding out, even psychologically with all the free sex in our day and age, is it's not free. Your soul has connected with everybody that you've ever had sex with and has really literally been ripped to shreds because you you have performed an act that puts the souls together and then you've performed another act which rips them apart, basically doing a divorce without court proceedings. you've You've joined the two souls together and then you've ripped them apart. So people who have multiple sex partners have a very ripped, tattered soul and will never find peace again without God touching them. And it's something that's very powerful, and they're starting to see the ramifications of these people that are having you know, one night stands over and over and over again, and the emotional scarring and the way they look at things is, start, is being totally skewed. So when God says you're one, he meant you're one. And it's kind of interesting, even when you see somebody who is divorced, the bitterness between those two people that goes on for forever. You see somebody 40 years after their divorce who are still totally bitter with the previous spouse and especially if they haven't even known each other for that long you know now when it's kids and they've been forced together it's even worse you know because they're forced to be dealing with each other and they don't and they want to put space between them but even on those handful that have had the space put between them with no family no no anything still have bitter feelings they got married thinking it was going to be forever and it got torn up and it has deep scars at the soul level and each of these hookups have a relationship that draws people together and draws their spirits together and then rips them apart. And we see this also with women who don't have physical relationships but give their whole heart to somebody, some guy, and totally get you know, connected to them emotionally. And some guys, to a degree, but most guys don't get that tightly emotionally attached. And then when that rips up, it's just like a divorce for that woman who then gets scarred Even though there was no physical connection, there was a huge emotional connection. And that can happen. We need to be very careful who we knit ourselves with to because those are very strong relationships, especially when we put our soul into that relationship. And it's very deep and it's very destructive. And Satan wants to see that destruction because he can either make the person so cold that they don't care anymore and they continue... Ripping their soul even more or they go to the other extreme and say I've been I've been hurt so bad I'm never Going to have sex again or they flip genders And say well the other the 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 other side has made me so sick and, and tired I'll just become a homosexual now none of what we are seeing in our day is brand new The Romans did it the Greeks did it the Egyptians did it the Babylonians did it the Assyrians did it It's nothing new as Ecclesiastes says, nothing new under the sun. Everything that we're seeing today has happened, not, not as globally as we've seen it, other than what we can extrapolate to the days of Noah when it says everyone did what was right in their own size, uh, sight and that every imagination of man was evil. We're starting to see that in our day, where it seems like everybody has is, their imaginations are evil. You, know, you talk to people that should be ashamed of some of the stuff they do and they're bragging about it in public. And you're going, why? You know, how can you do that because of how far we've gone down? And much of it has to do with our entertainment, but again, that's not even new. It's exactly what has happened in the past generations, except in their case, it was all live. What we get to watch on television was live-action theater. You know, the murders, the sex, everything was live on stage. You saw everything... Uh, we get to watch it on TV uh, instead of seeing it live. And we're pushing it into being done live uh, out there. So, I mean, nothing new under the sun. It's always been out there. The delivery system's a little different, but it's still the same problems that have always existed. And so, you know, we want to be shocked in one sense that it has happened, but it's not brand new. There's a lot of people think, well, Wow, it's never happened before. Read your Bible. I really don't like it when, when I hear Christians say, well, none of this stuff going on today has ever happened before. Go on. Days of Noah, Egypt, Syria, ba- all the Canaanite tribes, uh, Rome, uh, Greek. You know, how many times do you want it to happen? You know, It is what brings judgment. And it really is. Nothing new. Verse 12. In you they have taken gifts to shed blood, you have taken usury and increase and increase and you have greedily gained of your neighbors by extortion and you have forgotten me, says the Lord. It says you have taken gifts to shed blood, taken bribes. Yeah. Just to sound a little familiar. <laughs> yeah. we, we see that all the time. You have taken usury, usury in case you don't want know that, that's another word for interest, usually high interest, but interest period. The Jews were not to charge their own, their own countrymen interest at all. They were to just loan them the money and take back payments. They could charge Gentiles interest, and, and they did. <laughs> but they were not supposed to charge each other interest, and yet they did <laughs> in mo- most of their history. Uh, you've taken increase, and you have greedily gained of your neighbors by extortion extortion we know what that is you know threatening them you you give me this or I'm going to you know do this or let this out or tell people this whether it's true or not they they're blackmailing you basically extortion and you have forgotten me says the Lord God all of these things were because they had forgotten God yeah it's so important how do we stay away from sin we stay in his word We stay in his word. And it's so important. Um, I finished reading uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, and it was kind of interesting because the very last couple uh, chapters of Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about the the steps into apostasy or backsliding. And it was kind of interesting because I read through them. I'm going, yes, 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 yes. Now, I read the book long ago when I was a young Christian. None of it seemed to sink into my mind because it probably didn't mean anything to me. As a teenager, I'm going through. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, they stop coming, they stop reading, they stop praying, and you stop doing the things in secret. And then you start doing, stop doing the good openly, and you start doing the sins in secret. And then you start doing the sins openly, and that's your steps into falling away. You stop coming to church. You stop, and usually before you stop coming to church, you stopped reading your Bible at home. You stopped praying at home. You stopped the the personal things between you and God and then you then eventually the pastor steps on your toes one day and you get offended at the pastor or somebody says something in the church that offends you and because you're not reading your Bible you're not praying you're not following God you go I'm not going to church anymore and then you start getting into the sins and you start doing them quietly because you're kind of ashamed of them because you do know the Bible well enough that you know you're not supposed to and then you start doing them openly and it was kind of interesting because that's exactly what ends up happening you can watch the steps falling away. And you can see it as you can you watch people in the last 40 plus years. I've watched people do this. You know, They're at every single service. Then the next thing you know, there's one service they're not coming to. Then they're not coming to two services. And The next thing you haven't seen them for months. Or you see them once a month. And then you don't see them at all. Because they've falling backwards and then I can guarantee if you went to talk to him it would start with you know I stopped reading my Bible I didn't have time to read my Bible and then I didn't have time to to pray and all the steps that lead to backsliding so for us as Christians we need to be careful if we find ourselves having struggling reading our Bible we need to get our act together <laughs> and start purposing to read our Bible because that's the real first step if you're not feeding yourself spiritually the world's going to feed you. To, your spirit is going to be fed, or your soul is going to be fed. And if your soul's fed, it'll do soulish activities and take you away from church. When you're feeding your spirit, the spirit will overrule the soul in most cases, and you will do more spiritual things. But there is no standing still in the spiritual walk. You're either moving forward with God and growing, or you're going backwards. And any of us who have ever been backslidden knows exactly how it works. And and as I've told you, I've been there and done that. Pulled away from the church. And when I think about it, when I pulled away from the church, I had actually pulled away from reading my Bible all the time because I was working 60 to 80 hours a week. I didn't have much time to read the Bible. I didn't totally get rid of the Bible. But it was easy to start dropping away. And the next thing you know, I hadn't been in church in two two years, hadn't talked to God for two years, hadn't read my Bible for two years. Still sharing the gospel with people all the time, uh, frequently. And I don't know that I've told you, I don't know if I was sharing it more with people or if I just remember it more because I was telling myself, you're a hypocrite. You're telling them they need God and and get in the word, and you haven't done it. Uh, But you know, this is how it works we drift away from God slowly. And it starts with our personal relationship with God, not the one we show to the world. (laughs) Because there's lots of people who come to church every Sunday, have no relationship with God. Not saying they're into Christian or not Christian, but they're, they're not in a relationship with God. But they'll look like it. They'll be carrying their Bible. They might even come to Sunday school and say a few things from their, from their head knowledge of what they, what they know, but they haven't opened their Bible in a long time. They haven't prayed. We need to be very careful to not lose these personalized, at-home relationship with God and not just what we do out in the public. And it works the other way around. Once you start getting, you know, usually when you stop, you turn away from backsliding, usually the first thing you do is you start coming back to church. It doesn't usually start by going straight into the Bible, it might, but it usually starts with going back to church and then, you, then all the other personal things start, start back up. It kind of runs back the exact opposite way because you, you've got to get yourself motivated to get back into the Bible. <laughs> And then you start reading the Bible and you start going to more Bible studies and hanging out with God's people and talking about God's things. And and your grace and mercy has been restored and and you're walking with God again. But we want to be careful. If you find yourself drifting away from prayer and the word, get somebody to hold you accountable. This is where accountability comes in. You talk to somebody, you know, I need you to hold me accountable. These are the areas that I'm weak in. Ask me how many times I've read the Bible, how much I've prayed. Ask me about this sin or that sin. I'm giving you permission to hold me accountable. And then they will usually do the same thing for you and say, well, if we're going to do that, you hold me accountable in these areas. It's very important for us to have that person that can just say, hey, you know, how are you doing in this area? And we need to have somebody that we've given that kind of permission to that says, you've got permission to ask me the hard questions. If, if somebody is struggling with pornography, how have you done this week staying off the, the pornography sites or the books? You know, how have you done with telling the truth? How have you done with being on time to work? If that's your, Whatever it might be, you give them permission to really ask you the pointed question. And when you're not doing it right, you're not going to want to answer them. And that's when they know that they have to push a little harder to try to make you accountable. Because it starts in the inside not with what everybody sees. By the time we see it, it's too late. Well, it's not too late, but it's, you've gone a long way down the path toward backsliding by the time people see it. So we want to keep that in mind as we go forward. Verse 13, Behold, I have smitten my hand at your dishonest gain which you have made, and at the blood which you have in the midst of you. Can your heart endure, or can your hands be strong in the days that I deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken it. I will do it. And I will scatter you amongst the heathen, and disperse you in all the countries, and will consume your filthiness from you. And you shall take your inheritance in yourself, in your sight of the heathen, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So here God says, You've been doing all of this. Here's what I'm doing. <laughs> he says, I will smite my hands, or basically clap my hands, at your dishonest gain. He says, I'm, I'm going to get your attention. Have you ever, well most of you may not have be been teachers, but maybe you did it with your kids, and all of a sudden just walked in and they were being really loud or noisy and you just smacked, you clapped your hands really loud to get the attention. I've done that in a classroom and just instantly, if you can clap your hands loud enough, you get, whoa, what, what's going on? That's what God's saying. I've clapped my hands at you and I'm gonna get your attention. I'm gonna gain your attention because of your dishonest gain which you have made and the blood which you have shed. He goes, I'm paying attention. I am paying attention. How often do we forget that God is paying attention to everything that we do? You know, quite often. All the, time. You know, all the time. If you're sinning, if you're sinning, you're you're not really thinking that God's seeing it because you wouldn't do it. You know, I I talk to somebody who would go, you know, if my mom knew that I was doing this, I'd never do it. And I go, okay, you wouldn't do it if your mom was here, and you, but you're doing it in front of God. Well, uh, I go, God's here. least we don't think about it because we don't truly believe that God is omnipresent. We act according to what we believe in our true belief. If we truly believe that God's omnipresence, then we would be truly realizing that everything we do is seen by him and or that we're dragging him into the middle of everything we do because he lives within us. Have you ever thought about that? Everything that? Every sin that you do, if you're a Christian, you're dragging God into the middle of that sin because he lives in you. Yeah. But that's the point that is to be made. Do we truly believe that God is indwelling us, that he's omnipresent, that he truly knows everything that I do? Maybe that we don't care. But I think it's more that in totality, we probably don't truly believe it. It's the same thing when we go through hard times and God says rejoice in, in, in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, all things work together for good, all these other verses, if our first impulse is, this is bad, it shouldn't be happening, I'm not really believing that God is in control. The more I believe something, the easier it is to walk through the hardships. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, why? because he's with me if I truly 100 percent believe that he's with me and I'm keeping cognizant of it I will walk through anything and know that he is in control when I forget that he's in control I get fearful and upset and, and irritated by what's going on now my human nature is going to want to get fearful irritated and upset alright which is why it needs to be crucified and the more But again, the more I'm concentrated on God's word and on him, the more I will remember that he is in charge and he's in control and the easier it is to walk through these hardships that come my way. The less I am in in his word and the more I'm focused on the world, the less I'm going to be concerned about God and truly not believing that he's in charge and in control. So it really is a, a statement of where am I with God? If I'm being knocked over by every little problem that comes my way, I'm not hidden in God at that moment. I stepped outside of the fortress and I'm trying to beat the, storm, beat the hurricane myself. And if you've ever tried to stand out in a hurricane or tornado, even the outskirts of it, it's pretty bad. Now, we, we used to do dumb things like get out in the middle of the eye and play around in the eye and then get hit by the hard winds occasionally if we didn't get back, if we weren't watching. You know, not a smart move to do. Don't, don't ever try that. Really not a smart thing to do. Uh, because you go from dead calm into extremely high winds very quickly. And if you're not watching the storm coming along, you could get caught out in it, especially if it moves fast. But you know, we do that as Christians many times. God, I'm just gonna, I know you said stay hidden in you and you're my fortress and you're my defender and everything, but I'm just gonna go out there and, and tease Satan a little bit. <laughs> You know I'm gonna stay within reach of the gate you know but I'm just gonna tease him as he shoots arrows at you and you can't get away from them you know, we do this frequently god I, I think I'm just gonna play I'm gonna play with the sin you know I'm not gonna cross the line as the whole ground slips out from under you and you go down the down the cliff you know, we do this all the time we play how and this is what I've said before many times I've been asked how close can you get to this sin without committing the sin? Wrong question for us as a Christian. How far do I need to stay away from this sin? You know, how far can I go the other direction? <laughs> Not how close can I get. How close to the lie can I get before I've actually lied? You know, how close can I get to adultery before I've actually committed adultery? Well, if you take a Jesus and you've, and you've had some lust in your heart, you've already crossed the line, even whether you have or haven't. Cross the line physically, you know, and we look at this and we go, as Christians, we should be staying as far away from sin as we possibly can remove ourselves, and yet we'll so often get playing with sin. How close? How close can I walk up to the edge? Ah, uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tease this chained uh, lion and just have it swipe at me. You know, see how close I can get before it finally you know and before it catches hold of me. And we do this so frequently so frequently and God's saying stay away from it stay hidden in me stay focused on my word but again the more we stay focused on him the more we stay in in, geared on him the more he's going to protect us and then when you do find yourself in a sin when you've been focusing on him all of a sudden you get so guilty and convicted you go god i am sorry i don't know how i fell into that but i'm going to get away from it now and repent and it says Can your heart, your your soul, your innermost being endure and can your hands be strong in the days that I shall uh, deal with you, says the Lord? I have spoken it, I will do it. Oh, how many times have you been having God deal with you for your sin? (laughs) Um, Oh, it's a terrible place to be when God starts saying, I'm going to talk to you. Job confidently saying, I want to talk to God, I want to talk to God, I want to plead my case with God. I want to plead my case with God. And then all of a sudden God says, okay, Job, stand up. You and I are now going to talk. And Job says, I, I was fainted. I couldn't, I couldn't speak. And God's telling me to speak. And you go through many chapters, you know, quite a few chapters of God saying, where were you when I did? Where were you when I did? Where were you when I did? Where would I do? Where? And he just kept hammering him with all these questions. Where were you when I created the heavens? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I hung the earth and the stars and the moons on nothing. Where were you? you know, and Job saying, I can't speak. Most all of us have been there at some point in our life where God says, okay, answer me. I'm now touching you. You, you thought you could do this and get away with it. Uh, I'm here now. Give me a reason. And if we're smart, we keep our mouth shut and say, God, I am guilty. I, I confess that I am sin. I repent. And turn away from it. And here it is. God says, who can endure? What part of your inner being can endure when I come in and I deal with you? You Not enough of you had a parent that dealt with you. You They can make you feel pretty bad. Just the God, he knows exactly what to say, what to do to make you totally understand that you're guilty. He says, I will scatter you among the heathen and disperse you amongst the countries and will consume your filthiness out of you. And that's exactly what he was doing right now in Ezekiel's day, saying, you're going into captivity. You're going into captivity because of your disobedience. The primary disobedience that that Jeremiah tells us about, besides all the idols and everything, was that they hadn't kept the Sabbath year. Every seventh year they weren't to plant plant their fields, and they had not done that for the entire time that they had been in the promised land. And God says, well, you guys haven't done it. You're going into captivity for seven year, seven, 70 years. I'm going to get my Sabbath years out of you. So that's his, his idea of captivity. Captivity is to scatter them. Scatter them. Scatter them. And in this, case, in this case, they went into Babylon. Now Babylon also was one of the first nations that when they conquered somebody, they took the people out of that nation and scattered them all through their kingdom. OK, and then they took people from the other parts of the kingdom and put them in their nation. Really helped from, for rebellion, because the people you put there didn't care about the land. Plus they had neighbors from all different countries, so they couldn't join, wouldn't join together against the common enemy of Babylon, because first you had to learn the language of the people that you were living around. So there was no, and then they moved you where you wouldn't care where you were at, and they tried to have peace. And pretty much had peace because of that. Uh, if Hitler had done that to the French and moved them out of, out of France into Poland and all these places, he wouldn't have had as much problem with the French people t- rebelling against him and the resistance because nobody would have cared. It's not my land. Why do I care? I want to go back. I want to get on a train and go back to my land. And, and the Babylonians were the, one of the first ones to do that. America followed suit with the Native Indians where we transferred all the East Coast Indians to the West Coast, the West Coast Indians to the East Coast and tried to wipe them out basically because take desert Indians and put them in the swamps where they don't know how to live or what they can eat or, and you take the swamp Indians who are used to having plenty of water and stick them out in the desert. It was a genocide action. It was designed to try to kill off all the Indians and we see all of these things that go on. The inhumanity of man against man when it's taken to his extreme. But God says, I'm scattering you. He brings them back after 70 years, and they, and they stay in their country for a couple hundred years, and then in Jesus, when Jesus is crucified, they rebel one more last time after that, and Rome scatters them throughout the entire world. And the Ro- entire Roman Empire, they scattered them. They said, okay, you guys are just too much trouble, and they moved them all out of Israel and scattered them throughout the entire Roman Empire some of them did it voluntarily so but most of them were forced into the roman empire and you got to remember the roman empire went from italy to england to southern africa all the way up into most of northern europe and they scattered them everywhere and again that was god saying i'm going to scatter you you've been disobedient you're not following my rules you're going to be scattered and it says you shall take your inheritance in yourself in the sight of the heathen and you shall know that I am God so God says I am going to take and I love this you shall take your inheritance who they are Jews You realize that the Jewish are probably the only people who have been scattered all throughout the world and kept their religion and kept their identity as strongly as they have they were known all through the Middle Ages as very lazy people because they took a vacation every week they did not work on Saturday and they were considered by, their, by everybody around them as very lazy because they took a day off every week when nobody else took a day off. And they're going, you guys are lazy. You, you, you have to have a vacation. Every, every week you have to take a one-day vacation. You guys are lazy. But they kept God's Sabbaths. They kept the Passover as best they could without a tabernacle. They kept tabernacles. They kept Pentecost. They kept all the different major feasts. Not as way they were supposed to because there was no temple, no sacrifice, but they kept following him and they said, we're Jews, we do these things because God told us to. They taught their children to read the Hebrew scriptures. They may not know how to read the local language, but they knew how to read the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, why? Because they wanted them to be able to read the, read the law. The United States had one of the highest literacy rates in the 16 and 17. Uh, 16th and 17th century because we understood we wanted people to read the Bible and we had very high literacy rates I don't know if you've ever seen it but uh, I've, I've actually seen the high school entrance exam from the 17 uh, from the 1700s to get into to get into high school not to get into college but to get into high school and high school was seventh grade I have a college degree I couldn't pass the test okay and people want to tell, say they were, weren't very literate back then. In the average first and second grader were learning words like justification, sanctification. You know, they, they were learning six and seven syllable words. And we teach our first and second graders, see Dick run, see Jane run, see Dick and Jane run after the dog. You know, and, and we think that they're really smart. Okay. And first graders were learning multi-syllable words the whole thing they were studying was to be able to read the Bible so by sixth grade you wanted to be able to read the Bible and read it well and after that if you really wanted to be educated you went into high school most people stopped school after sixth grade because it was a pretty tough exam to get in just to get in not even to think about the entrance exam to the colleges and if you know, if you don't know this we'll give one last piece of history all of our Ivy League colleges and all the big colleges on the East Coast that are from the early days were established as theology schools. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all of them were denominational seminaries and theology schools. Teaching God's word with the intent, expressed purpose of producing pastors and missionaries to go out to evangelize primarily the Native Americans at that time oh how this country has fallen from its roots now we have those schools the most liberal wouldn't wouldn't believe god have shortened the names of their of their mottos to to not uh not show the godly godly part of it most of them still haven't cleaned up their crest yet because most of them have hebrew writing that has hebrew verses in them and and the name of god and everything in their crest in hebrew or and or greek uh so how far this country has fallen from its foundation. And we wonder why we're having the problems that we're having. Because a country that is not trusting God, democracy does not work without honoring God and having morality. And our country, the further we get from morality, the further our democracy falls. Which is also why every time we try to import, uh, export democracies to these countries that aren't moral, The democracies don't work. Middle East, we've tried to import democracy into many of them, and the only one that works is Is Israel because they're built on the morality of God. And it's the only democracy in the Middle East that actually works, okay? There's not all the undercurrents of dishonesty and bribery and buying off the votes and everything because they have their foundation on God. We We had our foundation on God, and we had a very strong country the further we get from that morality, the more we're seeing bribery and, and all the other stuff that goes along with a democracy that doesn't work, or a republic in our case, uh, that doesn't work. We've got to follow God. He has to be center of everything we do. Without God being the center of everything, nothing works. Literally, nothing works if God's not the center of it. Businesses don't truly work if God's not the center of them because if God's not the center, eventually they just turn into greedy, what's, be, what's in it for me? And we see many of these country, companies that were started on godly principles by godly men that God built up greatly, and we see where they're at today, and it's kind of scary because they're just as bad as every other business out there. You know, some of these people, J.C. Penney, Sears and Roebuck, the guy that started Caterpillar, all started in ungodly principles. All three of those men gave God ninety percent of their profit and kept ten percent for themselves, and they became multimillionaires in and of themselves, which means they gave a lot of money to God. But you know, how much are we willing to honor God? Very big question for us. Is our mind, is our whole life focused on Him? And to the degree that we honor him will show us to the degree that we are focused on him. The more sin reigns in our life, the more we realize that we're not focused on God completely. And that should challenge us to repent of our sin and get more focused on God. Let him crucify our flesh, crucify uh, who we are. It takes time. It takes time to get there. And believe me, I know because we've talked about this, it is a growing cycle. When you first get saved, you're going to make lots of mistakes with God. You don't know any better, just as the baby doesn't tend to know any better until they've been disciplined and corrected enough times that they go, Oh, it hurts to have my hand slapped every time I reach out and touch the glass bowl on the table that mom and dad don't want want me to touch. I think maybe I'm not going to touch it anymore. And eventually they stop touching it. Oh, it hurts to have my hand slapped every time I try to stick it in that plug. You know, maybe we might want to let them get in the plug and get a little shock, but that might kill too, too much, you know. So they smack their hand, and they go, well, you know, it hurts to get that. I don't want to do it anymore. God does the same thing with us. He keeps smacking our hands until we get older, and then he starts smacking more parts of us and says, you're going to, it's going to hurt. You're going to sin. I'm going to cause pain. And the pain is designed so that we go, you know what? Every time I do this, this happens, and It hurts. And hopefully, we get smart enough at some point saying, do this, get hurt. Maybe I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> some of us are stubborn. <laughs> and it takes a long time to get to that point of having to get hurt a lot of times. But that's all God's trying to do. That's what discipline is. Causing pain to keep you from getting a worse pain and trying to bend you to what is right to avoid the pain of what is wrong. And that's what God does with us all the time sometimes he has to go hard sometimes if we're really stubborn he has to make us hit rock bottom and seen this with many people they get into drugs or alcohol and they've been you know they had great businesses and good family life and the next thing you know they've been so captured by it that they lose their business they lose their family and they're sitting on skid row and God goes okay have you had enough discipline now are you ready now to turn to me and oftentimes they are Okay, I finally give up. I've had one of those times. It took me six years to learn, but I've had one of those times where I said, God, I finally give up. I'm tired of being stubborn. I'm tired of trying to do it my way. And I literally believe I heard God said about time and instantly everything changed, instantly. God, I give up and we need to be ready to do just that. God, I give up. I'm tired of fighting you and being disciplined. Because the longer you fight them, the harder the discipline goes. God does not get tired of the discipline like humans do. The kids might wear down their parents if their parents aren't really honestly saying, I'm going to be the parent and you're going to learn not to do this. God doesn't wear down. He just keeps increasing the discipline until we finally wear down. And if we're not going to wear down, he'll take us home if we're one of his children. He'll keep the discipline up. And he doesn't give up. And thank God he doesn't give up. Because otherwise we'd be lost in our sins and be, be wasted. He'll just keep intensifying our punishment until we finally give up. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask that you help us learn quickly to turn our hearts to you. Help us to learn to be children who will be obedient, to not have to go through decades of, of punishment before we respond. Help us to see what's going on. Help us to encourage others as well. In your son's name, amen.